Hi, welcome to Nutra Champion, a podcast series where we speak with experts specializing in nutrition research, including scientists, doctors, and policy makers. Here, we will find out more about their research journey, their career, and even some personal life lessons. I'm Ting Ming, the editor of Nutra Ingredients Asia and your host for this podcast. You can listen to our past episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. In this episode, I'm honoured to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Clathorn, Emeritus Professor at the Children's Health Queensland Clinical Unit, part of the Faculty of Medicine in the University of Queensland. Dr. Clathorn, a paediatric gastroenterologist, also specialises in perinatal and paediatric nutrition research. He was also part of the Aspergan Coordinator International Expert Group, which in year 2005 came out with a medical position paper stating the global standard for the composition of infant formula. Aside from clinical practice and research, he also crossed over to the corporate industry between 2016 and 2020, joining Meet Johnson Nutrition as its Vice President in the Medical Affairs Asia, Infant Formula and Child Nutrition Unit. Hi, Prof. Clehon. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. How are you? Ting Min, I'm very well, thank you. Yes, uh, thank you for uh, this, uh, you know, taking the time to speak with me today on the topic of infant nutrition and infant health. So first of all, right, I, the question that I would like to ask you is that uh, the infant formula market today, it is filled with products that contain novel formulas and ingredients. Based on your research and experience with Aspergan Group uh, recommending infant formula composition standards, uh, what are the key essential nutrients that newborns should be taking in? Uh, well, thank you, Ting Min, for the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you today. Um, the, uh, let me give you a little bit of background to this international expert group too, uh, to put things in perspective. This was formed by... The, it was brought together by the, the European Society Espergan um, because at that time Codex Alimentarius, which is the sort of the major uh, world health body uh, involved in, in setting the standards for, for formula among other things, had been meeting for some time to try and there's a national representative, there was over 200 to the countries represented in this Codex group and they'd been meeting for many years to try and do their their latest iteration at that time and could have no that they, they became stale deadlocked and stalemated so this international expert group which was which was representative of the various regions of the world were brought together at Espergan's request to try and break this deadlock which we were very successfully able to do and you know I'm very very sort of proud of my involvement in that in that uh, working in that expert group which continues today to to sort of to be the sort of the probably the most cited article that I've that I've been involved in. And very interestingly, over the the course of the last uh, fifteen, because it was published in two thousand and five, the, the the results of the group. So in the last seventeen years, things have really they were really I think very sort of at the forefront back then, and they came we came to the conclusion that that infant formula should only contain components in such amounts that served as a nutritional purpose or provided another benefit. Now, that sounds very simple and trite, but it has some, some reference to 
what carries on, you know, what takes place in, in some elements of the infant formula business whereby an ingredient has been seen to show some form of scientific benefit, but then the addition of those formulations don't, don't sort of mimic what was seen in, in scientific trials. Now, what I mean by this is, is that it's, I think it's misleading to, to, to be adding certain, certain nutrients on the basis of sort of scientific claims that in fact have no, and the, the levels in the products have no, no real sort of relevance to what those scientific trials were. So I think we have to continue to be honest and, and true in the way we do these, this reporting and to, to be sort of to, 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 to continue to be led by the science. Um, and, but if you look at the, the sort of the evolution of infant formulas, and to go back to your, to your initial question, the evolution of infant formulas over the last 25, 30 years or more has, has changed somewhat. And, and in the early stages of infant formulation, it was one of looking to try and just sort of had this sort of, this uh, sort of premise that if, if you could measure something in, in, uh, in breast milk, that was good enough for you to try and mimic what's it, what was in breast milk without any real understanding or knowledge as to what that purpose of that in the substance was, or sort of, you know, why it was in breast milk. And I think there's been now a trend, I think we need, we need to ensure that anything that gets done to infant formula uh, or to childhood nutrition for that matter, but certainly an infant formula has to have, there has to be a functional relevance, not just the fact that it's there. So we're now looking at trying, trying to work out what are the functional benefits of various components, both individual and groups uh, in breast milk, and what are their functional reasons for them being there, more than just weight gain and, and, and growth, um, which is the provision of macronutrients and calories. Um, but we're now looking to sort of try and, you know, breast milk is a superfood uh, and contains so many biological products and, and, and bioactive substances, which we're just scratching the surface of as to what, what actually that entails. And it would be I think it would be very churlish and, 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 and misleading to try and think that one could, could, could rep, replicate breast milk uh, in, its, in its true sense. The reason being is that breast milk itself is not a static substance. It changes. Not only does it changes over the course of, of lactation, but it changes over the course of the day. And so to try and mimic a, a, pure, a, a pure breast milk replacement would be impossible. Um, and you would be having to have various infant formulas for the, the morning feed, the afternoon feed, the fore, the fore breast feed, the after the hind breast feed. So it really it becomes a becomes a, a nonsense to try and think that you can re re replicate this. Indeed, it sounds like a very complex. It's a very uh, complex sort of process, yeah. but but in yes. fact, it's if you take on the the premise, you've got to try and mimic the function of breast milk. And what is what what is breast milk doing? So it's a source of food. Uh, it's a source of substrates for growth and development, and it's a source of substance um, the nutrients to sort of tr to try and promote appropriate growth and development. And I and I use the term growth and development more than just not just weight gain, not just growth in length or head circumference, but 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 the growth and development of the functions of the body. From for instance, the immune system. For instance, the microbiome. Um, now when we when when this sort of the, so I think the Halcyon studies and this is around the time when when the when the international expert group was working, this really was the whole reason for the addition of of the of the 
um, essential fatty acids and long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, which the sort of the the, the sort of the addition of, of of DHA or docosahexaenoic acid was seen to be a seminal change, um, and and showed that there was that there was significant benefit in doing so, and this was this was initially as we see many of these things was seen with the addition in in preterm infant formulas, um, but then showed grew in the fact that there was a role uh, for this in 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 um, in term formulations as well, but in fact. 20 years of research was only just mimics of the international expert group sort of published their paper in 2005 but it wasn't until 2009 that the european uh, food standard association authority efsa recognized that that uh, uh, dha had a, a, a place in improving visual acuity uh, in the preterm infant and it wasn't until 2014 that it was shown that there was some there's some benefit in, in the addition of dha uh, in in uh, uh, with respect to psychomotor development as well, but all of those studies were were in a con in conjunction with the addition of various components of arachidonic acid or ARA, um, which has become important again because there's been some some changes in the regulations from the European group to show that in fact that they felt that that formulations could have actually increased the levels of DHA added to them. But the, but the addition of arachidonic acid was not considered to be essential, um, and that's that's troubled a lot of people, because the the whole 20, 25 years of research that's been done in the DHA ARA sort of space has been based on the addition of both of those two substances, admittedly in various various concentrations, um, but they're all they're there, they are there together. And, yeah. and yet, the, if you take the premise that there needs to be a nutritional purpose and a scientifically proven nutritional purpose, the use of, of DHA on its own without arachidonic acid, additional arachidonic acid, has not been tested in clinical trials um, that have been published to date. And so you know, there, is a, there is a concern amongst the, lead, the nutritional leadership in, in, in this area that, in fact, that we, that we may be doing harm. We okay. may not be, but we don't know yet. Okay. I think that, that that's that's uh, that's a that's a serious concern. Yeah, Prof. Pehon, I, I would like to ask uh, another question, which is also linked to this. I would like to, you know, uh, move a few steps back, which yes. is on, you know, uh, when, when we talk about the functional ingredients and the purpose that you mentioned earlier on, uh, you have stated DHA as one of them, the functional yes. ingredients. So uh, may I know in this case, right, what are the, uh, you know, key purpose uh, of DHA? And, you know, right now companies are adding them into formulas for, for what purpose? Well, it, it, they, they started off looking at it, its impact on on visual acuity. Now, the the, the, the basis of visual acuity is, is not for anything else. That it's a it's a reflection of enhanced nerve conduction. Um, and one of the things that we see in brain development or in neurological development in infants over the course of the of the, the first sort of years of life is the enhancement of nerve conduction. And nerve conduction is reflected on the is a reflection of improved uh, neurotransmission and also an improved myelination that, that occurs in the body. And so the so the, the measurement of, of visual acuity and or auditory evoked potentials, which are both 
measure, measurable in, in young children are a reflection of this brain development. And that's that's where it started and shows showing that there, there's been countless randomised controlled trials that have been done showing that the addition of DHA and IRA have a, a, a positive and statistically, a statistically um, proven or significant uh, role in, in the enhancement of nerve conduction and with that mental mental development indices and improved IQ. So this was this has looked at brain development and brain growth and this was this was a very important sort of observation um, uh, coming from the from the, the, the 1980s and early 1990s um, with various formulations and, and the, the, the the historical Mead Johnson company was really at the forefront of, of, the, of this sort of science this science um, and uh, so that's and again other studies have, have shown um, that it not only is, it, is this had a role the addition of DHA has a role in the in the development and improvement of of brain growth and development, it also has a significant role in in allergy prevention and in also in in, in improved immunity. So the, the protection against infection, um, and that's that you know that's where those things have developed. Um, there's been you know quite significant transformations um, because everybody accepted and and the the, the authorities recommended the DHA was a uh, becoming an essential ingredient in engine formulations, people were looking to say, what can we do as a point of difference? What can we do to make this, you know, rather than the, the Me Too edition of DHA and ARA, what can we do to sort of try and have a, uh, a point of difference in this area? Um, mm. And that's mm. where the whole, and this is this is mirrored, uh, sort of mirrored, I suppose, or mimic with, with what we're seeing with the, the whole importance of the microbiome and the functions of the microbiome occurring and we're, we're learning rapidly how, how the microbiome is such an important um, component. Uh, and in fact, it's probably, you could consider it almost considered to be an organ in the body, um, that it has such an important role, not only in, in, in the, in fact, well, within the gut, but it has significant involvement with the, with the whole um, brain, brain or gut brain axis and its impact on on the emotional intelligence and the emotional sort of uh, functionality of the brain, um, which is the, sec the second part of brain development. You have the, the IQ development, but also the emotional development of things like sympathy and empathy and, and all the things which make us good people and, and good, good citizens. And it does appear as though that the, the microbiome is at the cornerstone, the forefront of this, this development and what we can do with, with uh, nutrition and knowledge of this has a significant role and bearing on the um, on the way the microbiome develops, uh, even to the point of you know how one is de delivered between the between cesarean section or, or vaginal delivery. Um, that the microbiome and, and this whole impact is is very important. In the first you know four to six months, you you you've really laid down the, the fabric of what's going to happen over the rest of your life. Yeah, um, indeed. Indeed, I have seen quite a lot of innovations around microbiome uh, yes. for infant nutrition, like say, you know, the addition of pre uh, and probiotics and in infant yes. formula. Yes. Yeah. So like microbiome and also cognitive development. So these are the two key purposes. Uh, any other, you know, uh, functional purposes that you think, you know, infant nutrition should be striving oh, yes. towards there's, to? There's a myriad there, Ting uh, Min. And, and if you look at, you know, I've been in clinical practice now for, longer than I care to admit. Um, 
But in my time, the evolution of food allergy, autoimmune disease, celiac disease, uh, cardiovascular disease, have all exploded in, in, in incidence over the course of, of, of the last 25 or 30 years. And all of these see, these seem to be, if you look at the, if you drill down into their, their evolution, the microbiome seems to be at the, at the key to this. And much of, the, much of the, where this is coming is actually the role of short-chain fatty acids uh, in, in, their, in, in the evolution of many of these, these, these substances. And so, again, the nutritional role of trying to optimise the production of short-chain fatty acids um, has a significant potential impact on the development of food allergy, um, the response to the, 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 what's the so-called allergic march, uh, the development of autoimmune diseases, Celiac disease, all of those things have a significant impact on the, the role of the short chain fatty acids. And so I think that's if you look, you talk about pre and probiotics. I think much of if you if you look at this, but the basic science of those, it does appear as though if, if I try and sort of work on it, it's, it comes comes down to what is the the prebiotic effect of, of these uh, sort of sort of the. Of the of the say things like the human mucolagosaccharides, the HMOs, um, what are their prebiotic effects to sort of try and promote optimum environment for the, the, the microbiome to do its thing in eubiosis? Um, so that's that they're the fascinating sort of the fascinating sort of uh, um, change in in the way we think think of infant formula or infant nutrition. I'm just playing infant formula, but infant nutrition. And I, and I put breast milk in this in this sort of way as well. So what we're doing in feeding babies is not just providing a source of calories, but we're providing bioactive sort of substances and bioactive processes to get them to 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 optimize the development of the body as a whole. So the holistic environment. Um, and one of the, the sort of I, I think one of the the real in sort of um, exciting areas is this whole impact of the microbiome. In personalised medicine and how one how one looks and sort of tries to to to, to sort of in, do things on a on an individual basis, you know, rather than a population basis. Indeed, indeed. So uh, you mentioned just now something about DHA and ARA. You were saying yes. saying that a lot of um infant formula nutrition products today they only include DHA when uh, ARA uh, together with DHA. It's important. It's important to have this combination. So, uh, can you explain more about this? Um, you know the importance of this combination, and also any other misconceptions that you know the industry might have got it, got it wrong. Um, yeah. Look, it's 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 complicated, um, and it comes down to I I think that the you know one of the um, and, and I know this is my own personal view, and I don't know that this this is the basis to it, but I'll but I'll espouse my personal view. I think that. The, the drive to, you know, having worked in industry, I know there's always a drive to try and reduce costs. And if you can, if you can reduce an ingredient cost and if you can reduce the sort of the, 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 the complexity of, it, of, your, of your, your formulation, it improves the bottom line. And so therefore, if you can reduce, if you can reduce something, that, that's, that's Seen by marketing as being and, and 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 corporate head office as being as being a good thing. Now that, that's the only that's the only to me the only logical explanation as to why 
arachidonic acid was seen as being um, a, a not essential ingredient in, in, in the, whole, the whole area because, as I said, there's been countless uh, randomised controlled trials. There's been countless really uh, beautifully done double-blind randomised controlled trials and, and, uh, and others um, which have looked at the benefits of the addition of both DHA and, and, and ARA. Um, the reason why these have been added is because we have a sense, there's, a, there's a central, essential fatty acids in, in, in sort of trying to uh, go from the, the monounsaturated um, fatty acids to the, to the long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And you, you do need to have linoleic and, and alpha linolenic acid as essential fatty acids. And whilst the body can um, make DHA and, and ARA uh, in its, from its own uh, physiological processes, there are rate limiting steps, and there is there is sort of there are potential adverse effects in having too much of one and not enough of the other, sort of because you can then you, you can get a sort of a, an overloading of of sort of icosapentaenoic acids and other. Um, icosanoids, which may have some deleterious effects in function as well. So there is a balance, and that's why there's been, although the, the, recommended, the, the recommended ratios vary from, from sort of um, governing body to governing body, there is a, a, a relevance to that the breast milk contains both DHA and ARA. And, and I'm very simplistically that nature doesn't do things by chance. There is a reason why those things are there, and there must there must be a reason. And, and I think we're seeing these reasons that they are that they are sort of pseudo essential ingredients that need to be sort of taken, and, and that that's why we have this in in breast milk, um, and all of the the randomised controlled trials and all of the, the meta analyses would show that there is a benefit, and this has been accepted by the Europeans. This has been accepted by Codex as being as being. Um, um, uh, relevant and important, and if one looks at, at the various regulatory bodies across across Asia Pacific in particular, whilst there's 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 not a great deal of agreements about what the actual numbers should be, there is a there is an agreement that, that if you add one, you should have some of the other as well, and I think that that's 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 a very important sort of observation to be making. So it does it has troubled many of the leaders that in fact only having DHA. And if in fact also the, the Europeans suggested that you, you should you could have higher levels of DHA again with not a great deal of science to support the reason for doing this, um, it, it, it is there are some concerns without the uh, the scientific evidence to sort of to support this is a safe thing to do. I think there is to me it's there's benefits in being cautious and benefits mm. in being hesitant and not being a first adopter. Mm. Which has been there's been a case in some in some manufacturers have have, have gone down that route. But I think my my expedient thing would be because of it has a, a benefit to the bottom line. I see, I see. And for this um, DHA and ARA, right? Uh, what is the recommended ratio, and what does the science, the evidence say about this uh, ratio? Oh well, the, the recommended ratio at the present stage is that a ratio. Um, of, of of two to one, um, with with the DHA being no more than half of point zero five percent of the fatty percentage of fatty acids, um, is the and 
this is this this is the sort of the the the, the mid range trial, and that's and that's if you look at the sort of you know, uh, 0.32 uh, grams per milligram per hundred kilocalories of DHA and 0.64 milligrams of of um, uh, of ARA seems to be the the sweet spot, uh, and this has been shown in 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 a very elegant. Uh, what's called the Diamond Study, which has been published by John Colombo and others um, a number of years ago, which looked at various levels of DHA from from zero to to high levels of point up to 0.96, showed that the the, the most beneficial levels were 0.32 and 0.64 milligrams per hundred kilocalorie, um, and with 0.32 being the one which has been which has been a sort of uh, uh, taken on board, and that. Is also, and I think important. That's well within the ranges of, of sort of the medium levels of what we see in breast milk, and I think that's that's important an important observation as well. Admittedly, there are very in, in various countries where there's a maybe a high seafood diet, the levels of DHA can increase. Um, but but if you look at the sort of the, the overall um, breast milk concentrations or compositions, that 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 level of of, of 0.32 um, is is well within the, the sort of the, the mid range of of um, uh, uh, breast milk levels. Mm, okay, so this is like a level that is a uh, uh, closest to uh, the, breast the breast milk. milk. Yeah. Okay, so with this, right, I'm wondering, like, uh, based on the clinical trials, uh, what does it say about this composition? In what ways would it uh, benefit the infant? And you know, uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if there's any like data uh, to show show this. Oh, there's look, there's, 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 there has been literally dozens and dozens of studies which have looked at this now, and I've, and I've referred to the Diamond study before. That this is, I think, the, the one which is which has been most elegantly done um, to to sort of show the the effects of the addition of DHA over and above. And the whole the whole purpose of these studies has been to show that there is a um, a, a benefit to to neurocognitive development. And, and as I mentioned before, this is reflected on the enhancement of, of myelination and the enhancement of, of nerve conduction, which is a reflection of this sort of process. And the, the studies have shown beneficial results in, in, in IQ, um, in mental developmental indices, in, in various components of these things like speech development and cognition as being, as being enhanced by the addition of DHA and ARA. Uh, in these infants, and sometimes it's only in the studies have been shown to have a supplementation occurring in the first four to six months of life. So, that, that, so the, the, this goes back to the, the the enhancement that what you do early on in life has such a key a, a key to the whole sort of later development. And we're seeing you're still seeing even in babies who are fed the addition of, of these these substances the first within the first year of life that these enhancements and these benefits are seen going out now in excess of, of, of 10 or 15 years uh, in studies which have shown these benefits and then still still you still see the measurable differences between those who are fed DHA and ARA and those who are not so it's the, the so-called control infants um, so that's the, that's that's been the, the real the important and and where these studies have been the, the, the much of this this the the um, or the slowness of the uptake of the, the regulations like EFSA has been because the studies the sort of the, the, the measurements, the, the, the techniques that we used to look at these babies were um, 
crude, uh, if you will, and, and weren't sophisticately sophisticated enough to sort of show different subtle differences in young infants who could not cooperate with with uh, with certain instructions. And so this is where the diamond study was so important because the 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 the, the key to this was done by Colombo and others looked at very very sophisticated measurements of of neural neurocognitive development things like sort of hand eye coordination and and visual acuity and sort of constant sort of fixation times and concentration spans which were which were not dependent on the cooperation of the infant to do this and they were able to sort of with these validated tests to sort of show that there were in fact measurable differences of see being seen in the measurement of this and that, that's why the in 2014 EFSA was able to accept that this was that there were there were derived benefits from, from taking this on board. Mm, I see. Okay. So other than this, right, about DHA ARA, may I know what are some of the other you know uh, infant nutrition research uh, projects or initiatives that you are involved at the moment? Sure. Um, yeah. Like I think if you look at the other, uh, if, you, if we take on the whole sort of reason for. We were going again. We're looking at function um, of the of the body and and the, the sort of the purpose of breast milk. The the two other the, the the two areas where there's been so much work being done of late in various quarters, but some not enough, but others maybe too much, has been the role of of um, human milk oligosaccharides, which is the third biggest component of of breast milk after lactose and the protein components. And also the role of milk fat globule, milk fat globular membrane, um, which is and, and there's a lot of crossover between those 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 in those areas. And I, and I my my biggest involvement was looking at the, the role of milk fat globular membrane when I was working in the corporate sector. Um, and it was exciting to look at that what what we're seeing with regards to to these developments. And there was a study which I was involved in in China, which was published a couple of years ago. Which looked at the addition of, of milk fat globular membrane in in these uh, in a group of Chinese infants and, and fed for the first year of life uh, with this milk fat globular membrane to show that there was in fact an enhancement of neurocognitive development, particularly during speech speech and speech and language development. Which, when you look at the the, 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 the social science and the and the and the, and the, and the cognitive scientists. That the the early onset of sort of the, the the early enhancement of of speech and language has a significant enhancement and a direct relationship with the the subsequent cognitive development and school performance. So we're seeing this this enhancement of, of growth and development occurring because of the addition of milk fat globular membrane, which is I suppose if you look at the the, the sort of the compare the complexities of DHA and ARA with MFGM. MFGM is a is a hugely complex sort of process with the addition of of uh, over 200 bioactive proteins and uh, numerous lipids, um, both glycolipids and phospholipids and sphingomyelins, um, as a package that comes again comes from breast milk, um, and so that's 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 a very important role. Um, the role of human milk oligosaccharides again has been very very popular. Uh, and very important in in this sort of space, um, as you as you talked before about, it's, it, they have the the impact and role in as as a prebiotic. Um, the 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 HMO scientists and prop, and, and proponents 
are all suggesting that there is also measurable benefits and, and differences with respect to mental developmental indices and the, the role in, on immunity and the role on allergy prevention and things. And whilst this is true, I think that another, if I look at it and said, if you take the microbiome as being the sort of the, the key to all this, I wonder whether the addition of the HMOs is being done through the, the enhancement of short chain fatty acid production um, rather than having a direct, a direct impact on this as well. Um, the, the, there's a lot of debate about, about, we know that there's over 200 different HMOs measurable in breast milk. And of that, only only six so far have been licensed for use in, in infant nutrition in the United States, for instance. And so we're just scratching the surface as to what the the role of, of these sort of HMOs are and where they're going. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more literature about this in the coming in the coming uh, sort of five to ten years. But I think it's still being to me, my own personal view is this all this is all being done through the, the their role in in um short chain fatty acid production, particularly butyrate, um, is its in its components and there's effect then on um, uh, emotional intelligence and emotional development. Mm, I see. Yes, HMO is indeed a very popular concept, a popular topic, because mm. I've been writing quite a lot on that uh, in the in the, you know in the past few months as well. Yeah. From, uh, speaking with the, uh, some researchers and companies. So, um, like you mentioned just now, you were uh, in the corporate. Uh, were. Um, yes. I understand that you were with Meet Johnson for nearly five years. Yes. So can you share, you know, uh, how and why did you decide to join the corporate world, uh, you know, apart from your uh, expertise as a pediatric gastroenterologist? Well, that's, that's a very good question. I, I get asked that all the time. Well, I, I was asked that all the time when I did made this transition. You know, I, I'd been involved in academic pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition all of my life. Um, and, and as a university professor and a, and a, a, a dean of a medical school, um, the, the research dollars were becoming harder and harder and harder to, to obtain and to get things uh, in, a, in a speedy way. If you're doing cancer research or cardiovascular research, it was easier because the, 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 the funding bodies were, were all over this because politicians and others had cardiovascular disease and cancers, and so it was easier to fund easier to fund the, these research proposals, whereas getting getting um, research dollars for infant feed and children childhood nutrition was always very difficult. Now, I was at the time I'd been, you know, I had a, li a, a lifetime friend who was the, had made the transition like I did um, a number of years before this, who, who encouraged me to sort of try and join him at Mead Johnson and this was a, a discussion that took four or five years before the planets lined up and we could, we could make that change. And I was, I was ready for a different challenge. Um, and it was, it was interesting to see how things were ha happening at the other side of, on the other side of the sort of the table, if you will, where there was research dollars and research dollars that could be spent quickly uh, and be targeted to the areas that were, that were of interest to myself. So that was a, that was the challenge, and I learnt a great deal of being able to sort of see how industry works, see to see what what were the sort of the the uh, the drivers of development. Um, it was also because of my uh, academic experience and my standing within the within the academic community, the so-called key opinion leaders, the KOLs. 
I was able to open doors and and have conversations with with like-minded researchers and like-minded sort of KOLs that the companies couldn't have. They they didn't have that access where I did. So I was I was seen as being sort of sort of you know the beneficial. Bridge. Ah, okay. Um, to do this, and so that was it. Was a mutually attractive sort of process, but it was the challenges, mm. and it was able to sort of, at, you know, one stage I was supervising seven or eight different research projects in China, um, and it was important that we had you know, the, the the premise that we had was that anything we did was had to be published, irrespective of the findings, had to be published, and had to be sort of put out there and shared with the scientific community, and so that was I think that was the tr the premise that we that we worked on. Which gave us respect um, and, and and maintain our integrity. Yes. So yeah, I think your time there also helped to bridge the gap, you know, between the research, uh, clinical practice, and also the industry. The three well, that's right. sectors was, they can was, come together. Around that time, there was the, the real catchphrase in in uh, uh, in research in general was translational research. That was the thing because there was. There was so much, if you look at basic science research, who were looking for a purpose. Um, and clinicians such as myself were able to find purpose for these things. We were able to identify what were the key, what, you know, what were the big questions that parents were asking? What was driving mothers to come to the doctor because of their baby? You know, what were the, what were the recurring questions that they had? What were the, the recurring problems that they had that we, we as clinicians then could, could find a reason for for doing this research, or we could redirect some of this research to sort of try and look at those questions which were clinically relevant and the so-called translate the science, the basic science to to the, the bedside. Indeed. Um, actually, the infant nutrition industry has evolved a lot. Yeah, so moving forward, how do you think, or what do you think are the promising areas um, that, you know, this uh, research can still continue to focus on? Uh, aside from research, maybe new product development as well. What do you think are the priorities that companies can can focus on? Well, that's that's an interesting sort of um, uh, question, I suppose. And, and some of the, also, I suppose, some of the recent research, being you know, the part we've talked about with the DHA, ARA, ARA and HMOs and MFGM, and I think MFGM is going to continue to be looked at in a, in a, in a, in, a, in many quarters um, for, for for years to come because it's such it is such an important sort of sort of concept. But we're also seeing uh, with time that there's this sort of this, the reduction of of the protein levels. Have been have been a positive in in the infant formulations because it's been observed it was always observed that infants who were breastfed were 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 lighter and thin, and thinner than babies who were formula fed at a year of age, and it was you know seen as being one of the reasons for this is because the, they were getting the infant formula babies were being fed higher levels of protein, and it's also been now shown that in fact that the the rate of weight gain. And the and and the and the growth at a year of age has a very significant direct relationship to the development of later metabolic syndrome, and and early 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 onset uh, diabetes mellitus and, and type two diabetes, and hence the, what you do in the first year of life can have a significant impact what's happening in adulthood, um, and there has because of this observation been shown that the, so the overall protein levels have been reduced. Something quite significantly to show no no detrimental effect on on other 
uh, nutrients, but also that you're slowing the weight gain down in those first year of life to be to mirror or mirror more what you see with breastfed with, with breastfed babies. But I think that that where to me where the functional research is going now is is looking at its whole relationship to the the, the gut brain axis uh, and its impact on 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 things like autism. Um, uh, the development of, of uh, attention deficit disorders, its role in cardiovascular disease, uh, its role, and there's even some, well, I think, fascinating research which has looked at and shown that the the role that the, the healthy the healthy emotional development in the first four or five years of life can have a significant uh, predictor as to what your future outcomes are going to be from the point of job earnings and salaries in your 30s and 40s. That that's mind-boggling when you think about the sort of the, the social science that look back and shown yeah. that salaries are directly relationship to what's happening in childhood. Um, it's fascinating, and I think that that's to me where the appropriate research should be headed, looking at these functional outcomes uh, rather than just picking at another ingredient and trying to sort of get a, get another ingredient which makes you makes you sort of different. So hopefully that's where the infant formula business is going to go. Um, to sort of try and look at this bigger picture rather than just these sort of very short-term gains. I see. So it's like looking at a long-term impact. Like what exactly. you mentioned just now, in the 30s to 40s, you know, the effects can can be that long-lasting. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's scary when you think about it because Indeed. until recently, the whole impact of feeding um, babies was not seen as being all that important to the, to the sort of the the key decision makers with respect to research dollars and funding and stuff. So there's been this real sea change, hopefully, um, in getting sort of, you know, where we're headed and you know, showing, you know, what, what, what one can do. Yeah, I believe that, you know, uh, with the evidence showing how long-lasting the impacts from infant nutrition can be, I guess, you know, uh, more people will place attention on this area uh, from, you know, be it from the government or from the industry as well. Yeah, thank you again, Prof. Kehon, for taking the time to speak with me on this podcast. Thank you for sharing your insights. Ting Min, it's been a great pleasure. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Neutral Champion on Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. You can also head to NutriIngredients-Asia.com for more content and news on the nutrition industry.